Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and before we get in the coming weeks back into kind of our regular preaching schedule, I felt compelled to do just kind of a little mini-series today, this morning and tonight. This morning we're going to look at why we must love the preached truth of God, and tonight we will look at why we must love to sing the truth of God, and tonight we'll major on singing, since we can't talk about it without doing it. But Acts 17 will be where we begin our thoughts this morning, and this is really just kind of our launching off point. The Apostle Paul and Silas have just escaped Thessalonica, and they're making their way to Berea, and we see what happens next in Acts 17, beginning in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. Paul and Silas were preaching. They were proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue to unsaved Jews in Luke's account here in Acts. It describes these soon-to-be-saved Jews as noble And the Greek word for noble means noble. It's just what it means right there. And he gives two reasons. The first one is they loved the preached word. They said they received the word with all eagerness. It's a word that means readiness, that they were ready to receive the word. They had been prepared and they prepared their own hearts to a certain degree and they were willing. And the second reason they were noble is that the preached word prompted their own study. And that's, that's every preacher's dream, that we preach a message and you go home and you look at it for, your, for yourself and they examine the scriptures every day to see if those things were so. There's something that marks the mature believer, something that says, I've stopped fooling around with my faith, I've stopped toying with faith, I'm now pursuing Christ, I'm pursuing the truth, I'm pursuing righteousness, and that is a love for the preached word of God. Not the occasional palatable message the occasional well i guess i have to take my vitamins but i'm talking about a ravenous hunger the type of hunger that someone has who's seen the fruit of the preached word in their lives and they understand that we can't live without it we must have it every once in a while i want to preach on preaching now you might wonder why in the church that's characterized by the expositional preached word of god this is our major why we would preach on preaching well let me give you two reasons First of all, if you already love the preached truth of God, then you won't mind a sermon on preaching. It will delight you. It will be a reminder to you that you'll be thankful for. But if you're still not convinced, and the way I know you're not convinced, the evidence is what emphasis you put on preaching in your own life. Uh, How many sermons do you listen to? Then I'm here to convince you this morning. And I have a pretty sobering reason to try to convince you. I've really changed my mind on my thinking on the believer's response to preaching. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, there are lots of jokes that abound about preaching. Uh, there, there's reasons that we put a gigantic clock in the back. It's so that the pastor won't preach through lunch. Um, the length of sermons, how boring or how interesting is the preacher. Um, there are all kinds of jokes about the preacher offending the listener, uh, the preacher getting too close to sensitive topics like money and prayer and relationships and politics and so forth. But here's how I've changed in my own thinking. I used to feel that the person who 
was resistant, even just jokingly, to preaching was immature and needed more time to grow. Honestly, now I tend to wonder if that person's even a Christian because the word of God thrills our hearts. It, it, is, it is food for our souls. Christians love, we long for, we delight in, we require, we demand, we pray for the preached truth of God to become like the Bereans. And so I decided to start my shepherding of Grace Bible Church this year considering why we must love the preached truth of God. Now, every once in a while, a topical message is important for us. So I'd like to give you very simply some reasons you must love the preached truth. The reasons you must love the preached truth. I have a lot to share with you this morning, so I'm not gonna ask you to turn to all the passages that I'm using. You're gonna get paper cuts if you try to keep up, but you might want to make some notes. Now, before we start looking at reasons you must love the preached truth, let me define preaching. First of all, what preaching is not. Preaching is not a person standing up saying words in church. That's not preaching. Anyone can do that. What is preaching? Let me give you a three-part definition. First of all, it is declaration. It's a declaration of the truth. What truth? The truth of God as revealed in the scriptures and scriptures alone. And by the way, the glory that God receives from declaration is not dependent on your response. If I declare the word of truth, God gets glory whether you respond or not. And so that is the job of the preacher. It is to declare declaration. Second part of definition for preaching, exhortation. Exhortation, the familiar word in the New Testament is parakaleo, to urge, to implore you to believe the truth, to, to apply the truth, to love the truth. And preaching is not just a giving of information. So there's declaration and exhortation. And the third part of our three-part definition is correction. Correction. It is to plead with you to move away from sin and move toward righteousness to correct wrong thinking, to conform your minds and renew your minds in righteousness and blamelessness. Now, this three-part definition of declaration, exhortation, and correction, I didn't make up this definition. This is the Apostle Paul's definition. Titus chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What things is he talking about? The beginning of Titus 2, tells us, but as for you, teach with accords with sound doctrine. What does it mean to teach with accords with sound doctrine? To teach sound doctrine and then teach with accords with it, doctrine and duty. What is our calling and what is our conformity? So let's do some reasons why we must love the preached truth of God. And I just want to do kind of a broad flyover of numbers of passages to show you that the Bible puts a massive emphasis on preaching. First reason we must love the preached truth of God. Preaching devastates the soul. It devastates the soul. And I think of Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah, the Jewish assistant to the king of Persia, he received some news from Jews who had already returned to Israel. The remnant who had already gone back are in trouble. They're in shame. The wall of Jerusalem has been broken down. The city is in shambles. The gates are burned up. The city is absolutely defenseless. And so Nehemiah receives this message from them. Now, this isn't exactly a sermon, but it was an accurate assessment of the degradation of the people of Israel. And this word was brought to Nehemiah in the sovereign plan of God because God wanted Nehemiah to respond to this message. And how did he respond? Nehemiah 1, 4, 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In other words, Nehemiah was not indifferent to the message of the Lord. Nehemiah wasn't looking at his watch saying, I wonder what time uh, lunch is going to be. I wonder if Chili's will be too crowded by the time Steve gets done preaching. He wasn't doing that. He wept. He mourned. This was the impact of Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. He had preached to the Jews that you had crucified Christ. It was your fault that he died. And by the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.37 says, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The preached word devastates the soul and it only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century English preacher, he said to his seminary students, quote, the gospel is preached in the ears of all men. It only comes with power to some. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it could consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die. But never a soul would be converted unless there were mysterious power going with it. The Holy Ghost changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls as preached to humanity, unless the Holy Ghost be with the word to give it power to convert the soul. Now, that is speaking specifically of evangelistic preaching, but let me apply this to us. When you begin to sense that the preached word is dull and far away and there's a deadness to your heart, to the preached word, you're in spiritual trouble. You're absolutely in trouble and you don't even know it. So pray for preaching to devastate your soul, to expose and to lay bare all that needs to be dealt with in your heart. And listen, this is not just the job of the preacher. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate power behind preaching, but it is your job to listen. It is your job to be listeners. I think even a a low quality, mediocre sermon, if brought by a man who is honestly doing his best to serve the Lord, has elements of truth that you can take home and say, I need to apply this to my life. To be a good listener is your job. Let me put it this way. You don't saunter into an operating room with a cup of coffee and texting your friends and sit down and say, oh, you ready? Okay, let's go ahead. Go ahead and cut open my heart. You don't do that. You're prepared. You're washed. You're cleansed. You are dressed properly. You are doing all the things that you need to do before that surgeon takes the scalpel and opens your body. You don't saunter into a time of preaching with a sense of whatever, a sense of lack of preparedness. You know you're about to be cut. It's for your own good and you prepare your mind, you prepare your heart, you even prepare your body for that all-important moment. If you like to stay up till five o'clock in the morning on Saturday night watching movies, what are you doing? You're saying, I don't really care about the preached word in my life. We prepare ourselves. And the surgeon is the Holy Spirit who wields the scalpel of the word of God through the preaching in a gathered assembly. So you must love to preach truth because it devastates your soul and it needs to devastate your soul. Here's a second reason we might look at. You must love to preach truth because it warns the lost. It warns the lost. 
In the 8th century BC, God sent Jonah the prophet, the reluctant prophet to be sure, to preach to Israel's enemies of all people, the Assyrians. And here's Jonah's call in Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Call out is a Hebrew word which means to shout, to cry out. Now Jonah was to go and he was to give a forceful message of coming judgment to Nineveh. We all know the story of Jonah's selfishness, his reluctance. It's ironic that Jonah is the most successful prophet in the history of the Bible, and he was the most sinful prophet in the history of the Bible. That's how God uses people. He was reluctant, but eventually God brought Jonah to himself to repent and to preach to Nineveh. And here was his massive sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Done. There was no soothing smile. There was no welcome to Nineveh Bible Church. There was no, we have a welcome packet for you if you would like to uh, express your desire to know more about our church. There was no jokes at the beginning. There was no pastoral handshakes, no soothing anything. He just said, you've got 40 days and you're dead. That was his preaching. Now, the unbeliever is not part of the church of Jesus Christ. We gather together as believers But as the Lord sovereignly allows, we often and probably even today have those among us who are searching, who are seeking, who know that there's something missing spiritually, uh, something's not right, but they don't know what it is. And so preaching warns the lost. It's God's mercy, it's God's kindness to the unbeliever to allow them to hear the truth of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you aren't even sure why you're here, I'll tell you why you're here. Because God sovereignly brought you here to hear that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords and he wants to be your savior, but you have to repent of your sin and you have to come before him in absolute humility and acknowledge that you need forgiveness. That's why God brought you here this morning. You might even be a bona fide member of Grace Bible Church and beginning to wonder if you're even saved. I don't have any illusions that every member of Grace Bible Church is actually saved. Or perhaps the Holy Spirit is moving in your life. But there's a sense in which our preaching is even more urgent than Jonah's. Why? I don't know how long you have. At least Jonah was able to say, you've got 40 days. You might not even have 40 minutes. Listen, I could name names of people that I have preached the gospel to in the course of my own ministry who did not respond and are now dead without Christ. You must love to preach truth because it warns the lost. And I'll tell you what, the true believer loves to hear the gospel because you know that there may be people right here, maybe even people listening on the internet who are hearing the gospel and that's thrilling to us. It's thrilling to be a part of that. It's like being a a fan of your favorite sports team. You know, you you wear the jersey and you wear the hat and you kind of act like you're on the team and you're, yes, this is us. In this case, it's really true. This is a team effort. We love to preach truth because it warns the lost. Here's a third reason. We love to preach truth because it focuses the heart. It focuses the heart. Matthew 10 records Jesus sending the 12 on a, on a preaching training trip. 
And they're given apostolic power by Christ to confirm the validity of their message by performing miracles, by relieving the pains and agonies of people. But I want you to notice something, even though that these are going out, they're going out to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. The message they're preaching is not a man-centered message. It's not a God will make you healthy and wealthy message. It was a clear, simple, focused message. Listen for it. Matthew 10, beginning in verse five. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no house of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the king is here, that is Jesus, and he is offering forgiveness on a silver platter, offering to make you part of the kingdom. Good preaching is not just about how to make you happy now. It's about how to be found on the right side of eternity. It's focused much more on the future and less on the immediate circumstance. The Apostle Paul gives a master thesis on this focus of the heart in Colossians chapter 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you hear his emphasis? Do you hear his focus? It's seek the things above. Set your mind on things above, where Christ is. Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. Listen, you can take this to the bank. When I give biblical exhortation in counseling and I get pushback and rationalization and dishonesty, that's a person who's lost focus on the kingdom and is concerned with self and feelings and personal motivation and personal happiness and personal awareness and personal everything. Me, 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 me. What kind of sermon did Jesus preach to the thief on the cross? Believe in me and I'll make all your dreams come true. No, he focused him on life after death with Christ. Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Gave him a very clear kingdom focus. You must love the preached truth because it focuses the heart. Let me give you a fourth reason. It inspires your worship. It inspires your worship. You can't worship without the preached word. You can't do it. Paul explained his mission to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, he said, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, the word unsearchable riches, this doesn't just mean that there's a lot of things to learn. Unsearchable means that all that there is to know about Christ cannot be discovered. It can't be researched. It can't be sought out. It can't be found. Everything you know about Christ has to be revealed, has to be given to you. And the Son of God wasn't just revealed in words on the pages of Scripture. We don't have just a distant esoteric description of Christ He's revealed in that he personally came and he dwelt among us. We have 33 years of eyewitness accounts of the nature and power and character and sovereignty and sacrifice and love of the Son of God. And this is what Paul and every minister of the gospel is called to preach, that if God has so graced us to reveal his Son, then we should be learning and growing in all that he has revealed of him. 
And so we are caused by the preaching of Christ to have knowledge of Christ, which does what? Gives us the ability to worship Christ. There's an old word that we don't use that much anymore. It's the word exalt. Not exalt, but exalt with a U. What does it mean to exalt in the Lord? It means to revel in, to rejoice, to wallow in something. The preached word of God in, inspires our worship because it helps us to, if I could put it this way, wallow in Christ and revel in him. You must love the preached truth because it inspires our worship. It's the fifth reason. You must love the preached truth because it revels in the gospel. It revels in the gospel. We read Romans chapter one this morning. Let me give you a little of the background. Paul writes to the church at Rome, arguably the most mature and well-grounded church at the time that he wrote. You know this when we read this morning in chapter one that he said, I wanna come to you, not just so I can impart to you some encouragement, but I want some encouragement back from you. This is a mature church. And Rome eventually became the geographic center of Christianity. Paul preached there, Peter preached there. And we would expect that the book of Romans would have a different tone and flavor than any other New Testament epistle, and it certainly does. I mean, it stands as a sentinel. It's like the glorious guardian. It's the gateway to all the other epistles. It is the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. If on one hand, 1 Thessalonians, for example, is an easy-to-understand encouragement to new believers, then Romans is the graduate masterclass to the astute and the judicious student of scripture and yet at the beginning of the book when Paul is expressing his desire to come preach there to reveal the truth of God to this church among churches what does he say does he say I'm eager to come and explore the intricacies of eschatology I'm I'm eager to explain an obscure passage from second chronicles I'm eager to teach on marriage and the family all of those would be good things that's fine But no, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, to these believers who know all that Paul has taught, he says, can I tell you something really exciting that I really want to preach? It's going to thrill your heart. I know you're going to love it. Let's talk about the gospel. And he's eager to go preach to them. In fact, in heaven, when your salvation is long consummated, long established, what will your desire be to think about? The book of Revelation gives us a little clue. Jesus is referred to by a particular name 28 times in the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God who was slain. Why is that important? Because that is a gospel-centered name for Christ. That long after your salvation is done, is established, you will still look to the lamb, the sacrifice, and think on the gospel. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just the truth that gets you a ticket to heaven and then you move on to more important things. It is God's grace which we celebrate into eternity. That The preached word of the gospel, it bolts our souls to the cross. I mean, it binds us to the truth of justification. It fortifies our faith in the blood of Christ. It captivates our minds to the propitiation, to the satisfaction of the wrath of God. You must love the preached truth because it revels in the gospel. Let me give you another reason. You must love the preached truth because it rehearses the truth. 
It rehearses the truth. At the beginning of of Romans, Paul expressed his desire to preach to the Romans, to preach the gospel to them. At the end of the book, he recaps all the reasons he has for writing to them. Romans 15, beginning in verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly, listen to this, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. In other words, everything Paul has said in this epistle to Romans is not new information to them. They've heard these things before. In chapters one through eight, Paul gives his inspired explanation of salvation, a detailed soteriology of the gospel of salvation. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul does an exposition of the sovereignty of God as revealed in Israel. In chapters 12 through 16, Paul explains our resulting service to God in response to salvation. So he explains salvation, sovereignty, and service. All of these things they understood, but he repeats the truth. Preaching is not just to give you new information about the Bible. As you mature in the faith, honestly, that will happen less and less. It's always a joy to me to know that you're hearing things that you know. That's a good thing. But it is to rehearse the truth, to rehearse it over and over and over again so that this is what you're made of. So that in moments of stress and distress and duress and trial and tribulation, the utterances of your mouth and the overflow of your heart bear the fruit of all the preaching that you have taken in. And you, as Charles Spurgeon would say, bleed the Bible. Listen, we are, as a people, we're dying. We're dying. All of us are dying physically, and some of you are still dying spiritually. And preaching is what we need. You must maintain a lifelong diet of preaching because you're dying The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote famously, I preach as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. You must have preaching. It must consume you. You must love the preached truth because it rehearses the truth. I'll give you a seventh reason. You must love the preached truth because it builds the kingdom. It builds the kingdom. I have a question for you. Why didn't God wait until the internet age to send Jesus Christ? I mean, how much more effective could he have been? How much faster could the gospel have reached the world? How much more effective would Christian movies and websites and skits and gimmicks be in spreading the gospel? But in his wisdom, God gave us an ordained and only truly effective means of building his kingdom, words. Words. And not just any words, inspired words written by men who personally heard sermon after sermon after sermon from the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ himself. What were the last words of Jesus to his apostles? The very last words he spoke on this earth to them, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, my preachers. In other words, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How did God's simplistic plan for preaching to build the kingdom, how did that work out? In the time of the apostles, before the last one died, the gospel had essentially reached the entire known world. Amazing without Amazon and without the internet. And like the church in Jerusalem, 
As recorded in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. By the time the last apostle, the apostle John died, the church of Jesus Christ was entrenched in the world. See, God didn't command give everyone Bibles. That's okay. But he commanded explain to everyone the Bible. Preach the Bible. Be witnesses of what you've seen in the scriptures and in your own life. And in some amazing way, I, I really can't fully grasp. The act of preaching is what builds the kingdom. This is why Satan has so many counterfeit preachers in the world to try to confuse the gospel. Satan, who is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is deceiving people in the wicked pulpits of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, Roman Catholicism, and most destructively of all, of all the aberrant preaching of the charismatic movement, the most destructive thing ever to happen to Christianity. But all the while, in faithful pulpits around the world, verse by verse, week by week, book by book, year by year, the truth of God is being preached and somehow kingdom citizens continue to be added day by day by day. It is how the kingdom is built. Let me give you an eighth reason. You must love the preached truth because it proclaims the Savior. It proclaims the Savior. Now this might seem redundant and I don't care. I'll talk about Jesus all day and be repetitive about it. The Apostle Paul preached and wrote on every conceivable topic in Christian theology. But his focus, his focal point, his center point of all of his preaching, he made very, very clear. He wrote to the Corinthian church and reminded them of what he had preached. Here's his reminders. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Chapter 1, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified. Chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He told the Colossian church, this is our church motto here at Grace Bible Church, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And we get a taste of how deep his commitment, how deep his yearning, how deep his priority was in the very next verse For this, what is that? The proclamation of Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's often joked that pastors have an easy job. They just work on Sundays. The Apostle Paul would say, are you kidding me? It's toil, it's labor, it's work, it's chiseling diamonds and trying to find a soul. Listen, Our worship of Christ is based in knowledge of Christ and you cannot worship someone you don't know very well. That's why charismatic worship is so empty because they don't know anything. And so thus their worship becomes empty. That's why for me personally, it's my aim to spend a significant amount of time in the gospels. Um, They most directly reveal Christ Jesus. I have kind of a little pastor's inside secret here. One of the main reasons we do a Sunday night service is so that I can devote Sunday morning primarily to the Gospels. We have a, a, a four times over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John opportunity to know Christ and see Christ and see the eyewitness to his life and his death. If I had the choice, I would probably stay in the Gospels all the time. That would be okay. I'll never forget 
uh, a lecture by Dr. Alex Montoya in a preaching class, and he has endeavored to preach through the Gospels continually on Sunday mornings in his 45-year ministry. And somebody asked the question, uh, what did you do when you got to the end of the Gospel of John? And he goes, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We just start over and preach Christ. Martin Luther said this, to preach Christ is to feed the soul, to justify it, to set it free and to save it if it believes the preaching. You must love the preached truth because it proclaims the Savior. This is how we know Christ. There's a ninth reason. It explains the secrets. The preached word explains the secrets. The well-taught Christian can explain the mysteries of the universe. Hey, you ever think about this? Somebody asks you, what's the purpose for living? Well, to glorify God. Where did I come from? Well, you were created by God. Okay, I'll stump you on this one. Why are there fossils of fish in my backyard? Well, Genesis six seventeen says, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. That's a fossil. Okay, how come there's so many languages on earth? Yeah, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages of men. Oh yeah, well, how about this one? How did the gospel spread so quickly in an age before the internet? Well, in Acts 2, God gave the temporary apostolic gift of languages or tongues to undo the curse of Babel so that the gospel might be proclaimed at lightning speed without a language barrier until a New Testament was written in a language that everybody read. Okay, in our day and age, why must marriage be between a man and a woman? Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What happens when I die? It is appointed to man to die once and then to face judgment. Hebrews 9.27, How can I avoid this judgment? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but it's passed from death to life. Well, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Why can we do this? I don't think I said anything just now that all of you don't know. The Apostle Paul explains why we can do this. Speaking of the preached word, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. In the verse 13, he says, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And we have all the answers. And this is the amazing thing about preaching routinely, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, from this and every faithful pulpit in the world, we routinely explain the mysteries of the universe as if it's no big deal. The mysteries about God, about salvation, about Christ, about the Trinity. All these things readily available at our fingertips to understand because the Spirit of God illumines our souls to understand it. And for us, these aren't secrets anymore. They're just the truths of God that are as natural as breathing. You must love the preached truth because it explains the secrets. Let me give you a tenth reason. You must love the preached truth because it transfers the truth. It transfers the truth. The, the church has a unique description, a unique calling in the world. 
First Timothy 3.15 calls us, quote, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What is a pillar? It's a Greek word that means a structure that other things are built upon. It holds things up. What is a buttress? It's a foundation. It's a support. The truth of the word of God, sadly, is not safe in our seminaries. Historically, it never has been. It is safe in the faithful local church, though. The Bible is always safest here among us. The average Christian doesn't read the Gospel of Matthew and say, you know, I think I'll question the authorship of Matthew and Matthew and whether that's even completely accurate. The average Christian doesn't radically alter the text to mean something different unless they've been taught to do so by their so-called pastor. The average Christian trusts the text of the Bible and believes it to be the standard for life and godliness. I've spent some portions of my ministry teaching on bibliology, why you can believe the Bible. And I'm always pleasantly surprised that Christians who have never heard sermons or teaching on bibliology, they all, they like it, but they say, well, I believe it because I read it and God moved in my heart. It's God's word. Why? Because the greatest witness to the inspiration of the scriptures is the Holy Spirit's witness in your own heart. It changed your life. So you wouldn't dare alter it. You wouldn't dare mess with it. You wouldn't dare change it. The average Christian trusts the text of the Bible. And the truth of the word of God is transferred generation by generation by generation. How? Through the preaching of the word. Preaching of the word to average Christians. Just by listening to preaching, just by taking in the truth of scripture, you are in fact fulfilling the mandate of 1 Timothy 3.15. Now we love our books. We have a bookstore and that is by design. Books have always played a big role in the transmission of biblical truth. The Apostle Paul asked Timothy to bring him his books, his parchments. But books can never replace the dynamic of preaching. It is never a replacement. You can never say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need preaching. I'm just going to read a lot of books. Listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards, the American Puritan pastor on this topic, speaking of books. It does not answer the aim which God had for merely for men to have good commentaries and expositions on the scripture and other good books of divinity because although these may tend to give a good doctrinal or speculative understanding of the word of God, yet they have not an equal tendency to impress them on men's hearts and affections. God hath appointed a particular and lively application of his word in the preaching of it as a fit means to affect sinners with the importance of religion, their own misery, the necessity of a remedy, and the glory and the sufficiency of that remedy provided to stir up the pure minds of the saints, quicken their affections by often bringing the great things of religion in their remembrance and setting them in their proper colors. Listen to this. Though they know them and have been fully instructed in them already, you need preaching because it transfers the truth. Let me give you an 11th reason. It fulfills the mission. It fulfills the mission. I've had people tell me, you know, I just don't feel like a special Christian. I I just feel like just a normal person. I just kind of fade into the background. I don't really have a special role. I'm not a unique person. I'm not particularly gifted. And the only gift I have is criticism. And I use that one too much. The only gift I have is sweeping floors. Well, let me encourage your heart. Listen to the charge, the holy oath that Paul puts Timothy under. 
He says in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into, into myths. I want you to know this, what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, have a great children's program. I charge you, have a vibrant counseling ministry. I charge you, have lots of activity, activities to keep the church members happy. I charge you, take a vote every once in a while to find out what the people want you to preach. None of that. He says, preach, Russo, proclaim, publicly announce, tell in an official capacity the word of God. And what is the job of the church? It is simply to listen. Why does this fulfill the mission of the church? This fulfills the mission of the church because the church that will listen to what comes from its pulpit will have all other ministries and activities running properly. All ministry flows downhill from the pulpit. All evangelism, all family life, all godly behavior starts here. In fact, the progress of the mission of the church is recorded in the book of Acts. And you could organize the book of Acts around preaching. Did you know that? Listen. Peter preached to crowds at Pentecost. Peter to the crowds at the temple. Peter to the Sanhedrin. Stephen to the Sanhedrin. Philip to the Samaritans. Peter to the Gentiles. Peter to the church at Jerusalem. Paul to the synagogue at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas at Iconium. Peter to the Jerusalem council. James to the Jerusalem council. Paul and Silas in prison. Paul in Athens at the Areopagus. Paul to the Ephesian elders. Paul to a crowd at Jerusalem. Paul to the Sanhedrin. Paul's defense before Felix and Caesarea. Paul to King Agrippa and Paul to Jewish leaders at Rome. 19 major sermons, not counting all the minor, smaller interactions. The mission of the church is advanced and fulfilled through preaching. And you simply being faithful to listen are a part of that process. You must love to preach truth because it fulfills the mission. Let me do one more. It's the hardest one. You must love the preached truth of God because it demands obedience. It demands obedience. And I want to end where we began in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, the imperative to preaching, the imperative to the teaching pastor. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Can I put it this way? The preacher is not here to give you suggestions. He is here to say, this is what the word of God says. Do it and be blessed. Don't do it and God is going to come after you. That's the job of the preacher. It is not to give opinion. It is not to give suggestions. It is to give exhortation. Paul tells him to exhort and rebuke with all authority. It literally means to be the top commander, to give a command and make it stick, to tell the people what the Bible says and insist, plead, urge, demand even, obedience. Let no one disregard you. It means to look down on you, to ignore you. The preacher of the Bible is the most denigrated character on earth today. 
There are more cartoons drawn about us. There are more caricatures done. There isn't a single Hollywood movie on, on the planet that ever portrays a pastor accurately. But in fact, if I could put it this way, we are here to speak for God. Not in the sense of prophetic utterances, but in the sense of uttering the word of God and demanding obedience to it. And it's for your good. Ian Murray, the great modern church historian, wrote this, the expository preacher is not one who shares his studies with others. He is an ambassador and a messenger authoritatively delivering the word of God to men. Listen, if the word of God preached, the word of God counseled, and all counseling is, is expository preaching one-on-one. That's all it is. If the word of God preached or counseled clearly demands obedience and you have named the name of Christ and yet you blatantly choose to disregard this, if you choose to willfully make a choice to choose self over Christ, then according to Matthew 18, 17 and 18, the church will be told and asked to call you to repentance. And if you still refuse, then the church will be instructed to treat you as an unbeliever, as someone who needs only one thing, not your friendship, just, your go- just the gospel. And listen, this is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. I have talked to so many people who are, they're calculating their odds. They're taking their chances. If I continue in this, maybe God won't find out. Maybe he won't really come after me. Why is this a dangerous, dangerous place to be? Ah, it's just this little local church. I can just move to Montana and nobody will ever know. God won't know. Here's why it's dangerous. In the same context, Jesus said that whatever is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Meaning that if a faithful local church legitimately calls someone out, calls you to obey the word of God and you refuse, then heaven will bind up the blessing in your life and you can expect the severe discipline of the Lord up to and including death. You can't expect that. The faithful local church is the ambassador of God. John MacArthur said in a sermon several years ago, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, sometimes I obey out of love, sometimes I obey out of duty, and at times I obey simply out of fear. Fear doesn't negate my love, but my fear of God is an expression of my love of God. Listen, the preached word demands obedience, and this is good for your soul because it brings the blessings of God, it brings the peace of a clear conscience, the peace that passes all understanding because obedience and joy go hand in hand. Obedience and joy go hand in hand. So I have two challenges for you. Take a deep breath. The first one is, I want to challenge you to listen to 200 sermons in 2018. To listen to 200 sermons. Now, I did my math we have marvelous resources to do this. First of all, if you show up to both Sunday services every week, you will have accomplished half your goal. There's the other half. Listen to 200 sermons. I have a second challenge. Listen to sermons from this pulpit as well. We're revamping the Steadfast in the Faith website. That You'll see that coming in the near future. Now, this may sound self-serving, but this is for your own good, and this is a biblical model. When Jesus gave specific messages to specific churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he began each letter to the angel of the church at Ephesus. This is not an angel as in a heavenly angel. This is a human messenger. 
The, the term angel is just a general term that means messenger. But this is a human messenger. The pastors, the elders. How do we know this? Because he told a couple of the angels they need to repent. Whether I'm always aware of it or not, God sovereignly directs the preaching of the word specific to this body of believers. Which is one reason that church hopping devastates your soul, by the way, because you're never a part of anything. That's why I say, listen to messages from this pulpit as well. Two challenges. Listen to 200 messages in 2018. Listen to MacArthur. Listen to Sproul. Listen to Lawson. Listen to Begg. Listen to Fabrez. All these guys, listen to them. And the second challenge, listen to past messages from this pulpit. God designed them for you. Designed them for you. I want to close with a quote from somebody you might not expect to, be, to speak on this topic. Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick. Listen to what he says. The pulpit is ever this earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in its rear. The pulpit leads the world. From thence it is the storm of God's quick wrath is first caught sight of and the bow must bear the earliest brunt. From thence it is the God of breezes, fair or foul, is first invoked for favorable winds. Yes, the world is a ship on its passage out and not a voyage complete, and the pulpit is its prow. In other words, the pulpits of faithful churches are the head of the ship that are leading mankind into eternity. And that ship will split apart some to go to eternal heaven and some to go to eternal hell, but the pulpit leads the way. Might I exhort you this year to listen to the preached word. Our Father, we thank you now for the opportunity to do something that is proclaimed to us in the word of God, and that is to receive the Lord's table. We would not know that we're to do this without your Bible. We would not know without the preached word that we are to remember Christ and remember his love for us. And so, Lord, we come now thinking on the cross, thinking about the glorious uh, delights that Christ has purchased for us by his death, by his sacrifice. And, Lord, we come now. um, I, I can't represent individuals here. I am merely a shepherd. I am not a priest And so it is my prayer that every individual here would come to this table with a pure heart, not holding resentment or bitterness against a single person, but in forgiveness of others as we have been forgiven, coming clean and pure to this most precious and holy of all tables, the Lord's table. And so I pray as we receive symbolically the body and the blood of Christ, that we would remember him, that we would have a sobriety and a joy mixed in this time of worship. We pray in Christ's name, amen.